welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest, someone I'm a big fan of, formerly of the group Stift, way back when, but more famous, of course, for her incredible solo career, Santi Gold is on the show today, and this is a fantastic conversation. I'm really excited for you to hear it. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at left for damien uh, If you want to support the show, support the show by telling all your friends about it. Let them all, letting them all know that we have this podcast and uh, it's it's got like close to 500 episodes and blah, blah, blah. Like, just tell them about it. Or you can subscribe to it or rate it on your platform of choice. Or, uh, yeah, yeah that, that, that's the best way. That's the best way to do it right now, currently, in the current situation. I also played a band. We are called Fucked Up. We will be going on tour for our brand new album, One Day, on Merge Records. We're heading to the UK next week. So if you're in the UK... Check your local tour dates. And when I say the UK, I don't think we're doing Northern Ireland, but I think we're doing everywhere else in the UK. Uh, not the Alloway, but we're doing we're doing a bunch of stuff in the UK. Check your local listings or head over to fuckedup.cc, and that's our webpage, and you can find out tour dates and stuff, because we're also going to the East Coast in the United States, and more stuff getting announced. It's going to be a busy summer for the tour thing, but we're not going to let you down over here at Turn Out a Punk. Don't worry. It's, it's like a symbiotic relationship. So head over to fuckedup.cc to find out more info uh, about the tour. All right, on to today's show. As I said off the top, uh, a music legend on the show today, Santi Gold, is here. Uh, Santi Gold, of course, has released incredible records going back to 2008. Before that, she have played in the band Stift, an incredible punk supergroup, which has connections to... Uh, Philadelphia DIY hardcore band Reveal to Philadelphia hardcore legends McRad with Chuck Treese. And anyway, we, we talk about it in this episode a little bit. Anyway, Santi Gold has a brand new record that's fantastic called Spirituals. You can hear it anywhere and everywhere now. Uh, this, is, this is an artist I, I'm a huge fan of, so I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation. I don't think there's... Anything more for me to, to babble on about, check out SantiGold.com for more information and uh, fan club info, whatnot. But before you run off and listen, I want to tell you something else I'm very excited about, and that is the fact that Cream Magazine is back. That's right, America's only rock and roll magazine is back. And I'm not just saying back in some website thing. I mean back in physical form, 128 gorgeous pages. This thing... This is like more like a book uh, than than just a, a magazine, but it is, it is, it is here. You know, in the same sort of spirit as the original, incredible contributions from unbelievable photographers and writers and people just that just love music. This is a truly a music lovers magazine. If you like this podcast, you are going to love this magazine. They've got a brand new issue that just came out in February, the end of February. They're going to be putting it out, as I say, four times a year. And you, my friends, because you are listeners of Turned Out a Punk, should head over to Cream with with two E's for the people that 
that don't know, uh, .com and check out, uh, not just the website, see what they have there, but they have uh, made an offer to our listeners where you can get a discount of 15% off by using the promo code turned out a punk. And I know people make fun of my Canadian accent. So that is O U T out a punk and, uh, and subscribe to this thing or join their fan club, which gives you access to this unbelievable archive of just every issue they've ever done. And also gives you a digital magazine as well. But, but you know, I, we're, we're physical format people. So you probably want to subscribe to the physical one. And this gives you a discount on that as well. Uh, as I say, this thing is back and, uh, I'm, I'm very excited, you know, like there's, we live in a world with dwindling places to go for, for this kind of, you know, deep dive music research stuff. And yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm very happy they're back and I'm very happy that they sponsored this podcast. They, them believing in this thing is, is really cool because you know, my, my, uh, Lauren, my wife's uncle uh, was an editor for cream magazine in the UK for a while. And, and, uh, I, you know, back in the day, and, you know, I've read this thing, Lester Banks, uh, were wrote, like came up with the first published usage of the word punk way back in like the late sixties. So, you know, this is, this, this, this thing's got a deep connection to this podcast. Anyway, check out cream.com, subscribe to this thing and celebrate magazines. And that's it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Santi Gold on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> Santi, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Well, as I was just telling you off air, you're someone I've wanted to talk to for, well, literally years at this point, because, you know, knowing where you've taken your career and you've gone, you know, and influenced music in, in such a huge way, but knowing that you came out of Philly hardcore, you're someone that I've always wanted to have this conversation with. So we're making it happen finally. Cool. Well, I got to start this off, though, the way they all start off, which is, Santi, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? Um, you know, I can't tell you. I never remember things, like, so concretely, usually, when they're so big. You know what I mean? It was definitely, like, little bits here and there. But I'll tell you, the main thing that I remember is is obviously my sister's music collection, because she was older than me, right? And that's why I learned about everything. So that's got to be one of the main places that I learned about punk, particularly about Bad Brains. Um, well, even before Bad Brains, she would be playing weird stuff in her room, like suicidal tendencies, right? And, and you know, my sister listened to everything. It wasn't just punk, it was everything. But, but it would be like, mom, I just wanted a Pepsi, you know? And I was like, I can relate to that. I'm like eight, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I just wanted a Pepsi. And then it'd be like, uh you know, you're the one that's crazy institutionalized and i was like this is so fun you know as a little kid who doesn't want to hear music people screaming at each other you know so then she started going to shows she must have been 15 by then and i was 12 and she would go see bad brains and, and you know and, and fishbone and, and the stuff i mean because we were excited because these are black people doing this stuff um and also for me, we had grown up listening to a lot of reggae in the house and stuff like that. And then here, here comes Bad Brains talking about Rastafari and this and that. And so I didn't know all that at, at 12. Well, I, I kind of, I didn't think about it as deep, but I was just like, oh, these guys look like me. This is cool. Who are they? And so she went to the shows and then she would come back 
soaking, dripping wet <laughs> with her Timberlands on, you know? And I was just like, what is this? Um, so that's kind of, it's from my sister, you know, just learning about all that stuff. Have you ever asked her where she was hearing about this stuff? Because, like, you know, it, it is you know, suicidal tendencies, I guess, was getting a little bit of TV play and the Bad Brains were getting a little bit of TV play, but it certainly wasn't mainstream music, way further from mainstream no. than it is now. No, it wasn't from that. And there's like Dead Milkman I knew about from school because they were from, they were like a local Philly Jersey. And so I think it was like a combination of there were some local people. She went to this um, magnet public school called Central. And I ended up going there for one year. Um, but there were so many people from every single scene in the city at this school and, and they were cool. Like there were some really cool people there that knew all, you know, they knew everything that was going on in the city. And I'm sure that had a huge part of her being exposed to some of the stuff. Um, but also back then your cool status fell very neatly into what music you were listening to and what music you knew about. So if you were cool, you better know about Bauhaus. You better know about, you know, Fun Boy 3. And you better know about, um, I mean, even like, you know, back then, let me think. I mean, all the rap stuff that was coming out. Like, there was so much good music. I even I remember also one of the earliest punk bands I heard was Beastie Boys. When I was in sixth grade at school, somebody was playing Cookie Puss. You know, <laughs> I was like, what's this, you know? Um, so it just, I think if you're into music and like, don't put a limit on like, oh, I only like this kind of music and you're kind of open to what's going on, then you find it. And if it just resonates with you, no matter what kind of music it is, you're like, this is exciting. It's amazing how much kind of musical innovation was coming out of Philadelphia too in the early eighties, like school ed with with rap music at the same time you've got like you know like dead milkman and and mcrad and why die and there's just sort of this and it's really well i guess because you know new york is such a much larger media market but it's really under documented i find yeah i mean i don't know that much i mean i've never been one to read a whole bunch about punk other than a couple of really cool books that have come out you know that go and talk to all those people come to the oral histories but for me, much of what I know is through people like Chuck Treese, who are like these living legends um, who I just learned from. Like even recently, I'm, I was just thinking about, um, well, well to, to quickly comment on what you said about people like Schooly D coming out of Philadelphia. I mean, there was such a correlation to me, um, being someone who was exposed earlier on to like every kind of black music, and then growing up and as as hip hop is growing up, you know, from the beginning, from um, like songs like Jam On It, I was on it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so when people like Schooly D came out, I mean, there's nothing more punk than Schooly D. You know, yeah, that yeah. energy is is very much the same energy as punk rock. And so I think that's why it was very easy for me to relate and go back and forth between hip hop and punk rock, because it's really, it was just as raw it was just as like aggressive and, and angstful and it had all the same components. It was just different players at the time. Um, but so then there's people like Chuck Treese. I didn't meet Chuck Treese until later. I met Chuck Treese at my prom. <laughs> really? <laughs> I had, I was in charge of music and I invited this DJ that I knew from the city and Chuck and him were really good friends. So he tagged along 
And Chuck was like, damn, she's only 17. <laughs> he made friends with Chuck after that. And then, I mean, led to years of musical collaboration. And he just, I mean, he introduced me to so many people and taught taught me about people. He, I mean, when I started my band, I was coming from doing songwriting and working in labels and had I was not coming from the just the the world. I hadn't even lived in Philadelphia in a long time at that point. And I moved back um, after having write, written this record for this artist named Reese on MCA. Like I worked in labels and I was coming from somewhere else. But then I wanted to, I had this music that was more rock based in my head and I wanted to hear it the way that I heard it in my head. So I moved back to Philly with this idea of starting a band. And I told Chuck though, I said, I just want to only make records. I'd never want to perform live. And he basically laughed. It was like, and you want to make punk? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, mm -hmm. okay, Santi, <laughs> let's just record first. So basically I learned how to sing doing this band, you know, how to really use my voice. And we did the first show and I literally had my head down the whole time. It was like messing around with this effects machine. So you couldn't really hear my voice on stage. It's just a little, a little pedal. And then um, it was all my friends in this little bar. And I seriously had the best time ever though. And from then on, I was like, he's like, see, it's fun. And I was like, oh my God. So then we started this night called The Clap um, at, at this place called The Fire in Philly. And I actually partnered with the Roots manager at the time who also gave me this book and he was like, learn all these bands, you know? Cause he, he, Rich Nichols was an amazing person. He was in all kinds of music. He was such a visionary. And he actually signed my, my punk band to this label that they had for a minute. Um, he was one of the first people who supported my punk band and had me coming into the studio at Larry Gold's in Philly to record. And everybody in Philly was doing Neo Soul and looking at me like, what are you doing except for rich he was like this is dope you know we had all kinds of bands come through um and then we would play and i literally that's where i learned how to sing that's where i learned how to perform yeah i think like if if you had started now or if it had come out the last few years i think it would be a different story i just don't think the world was ready for it but like i was listening to it today and it, it's, it's awesome how much it still still holds up yeah some of the songs <laughs> So I think the early 2000s was a different time. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could see, I think, in that, that I was such a melodic thinker, too. And I really liked the punk that was more melodic. Um, I even liked um, The Descendants, you know, mm -hmm. and like some of the stuff that's just you could you could hear the melody. That's why I loved HR so much. HR is one of my biggest influences because of the way he uses voice like an instrument. When people ask me, what are my vocal influences? I say HR and Nina Simone, and you couldn't get, you know, two broader, different styles, but they were so similar. They both had these really raw vocals. They did such unexpected things with their voices. And I mean, HR could just switch from voice to voice to voice in like within one song. And that really was inspirational to me, like how you can just use your voice, like all these different instruments within one song. Yeah, I think that's why there's such a hard band to cover, the Bad Brains, and why there's just so many bands that just do these terrible versions of different songs because that vocal is impossible. Like you're saying, it's like a, a true instrument and like a mastery of it. It's my favorite band to cover. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to claim anything, but it's, I find it like the most challenging and fun thing ever. <laughs> yes. And I remember when there was these shows, there was these like, there used to be these um, 
Bad Brains cover shows in New York at the Delancey Afropunk when they were just starting out would do them. And I just, you know, I didn't really know what that whole scene was at first, but that was like, what, Bad Brains cover show? Okay. And I remember I did Right Brigade. And, oh, it was so amazing. But I lost my voice for the first time after I stepped off stage. Because <laughs> I went so hard. When he's like, right, right, you know? Yeah. I did it. And then I walked off and I didn't have a voice. And I was, it had never happened before. I had many, many years of always losing my voice after that on tour and everything. But I remember being like, like, my voice doesn't work, you know? And just like, just the fact that people could, could use their voices like that over and over every night and just have such control and command. When you watch footage of him too, and like you add on top of that, that he's doing all that stuff live with it, but it also backflip. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how can any vocalist hope to compete where there's a, someone no. literally doing backflips while doing vocal backflips? No, yeah, you're right. Nobody's ever competed. It's like trying to compete with Prince. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's, and that's the thing about that band is they just, you know, continue to be this sort of influence because no one's ever going to really be able to catch up. Well, and also whether they catch up or not, it's the idea of doing something that was so novel in the moment that it arrived. You know, it's it was the blueprint. Mm -hmm. um, and not just for any black musician, but for like hardcore. Like I remember talking to Daryl about it and him being like, oh, well, you know, it was just gospel. We just sped up the drums. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> well, like when Daryl was on the show, I found like, just sort of the, the the sense of place that he has for the bad brains, like very humble, but at the same time, just sort of like this sort of understanding that the bad brains serve the sort of greater purpose. And like, you know, ultimately the bad brains got terrible record deals and had sort of this terrible run throughout the music industry. But he was saying like that for me was kind of necessary to get our message out there. And like the idea is like, it, it was bigger than trying to build a scene for us. It was like trying to, trying to be out there as much as possible and trying to just, you know, change music. Well, see, that's the thing about about punk, I think. Um, not just even as a music, but as a like belief system, you know? And yeah, I know there's so many different belief systems within punk, but just in general, we're just talking about what is punk. And it's just like the courage to go against the system, to go against what exists and to really follow what you believe in, right? And I think that that is the most important thing to take out of being a musician and actually standing for what you what you are, standing for what you believe in and being what you believe in, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is such a missing um, value these days in music. And um, so many punk musicians never really made, that made it to that much success. And if you look at where they are now in lives, they just live regular lives. And it was because that's not what it was about to them. And... You know, it kind of sucks that our country doesn't value people who change music and therefore change the world forever. You know, I've been mm -hmm. talking about that a lot lately because we're in a really horrible place for a lot of musicians. And I just think that, you know, it sucks that values don't align with people who actually are doing the right thing. Yeah, you're right. Like there's sort of this, you know, like back to what you were saying about School ED having this sort of like punk attitude. If you're looking at the way that, at the time he was making this music, no one was making music that hardcore in, in rap music at that point. And like, well, they were calling it gangster rap. Yeah. And he's self-releasing <laughs> it, you know, and, they, and yeah. like you believe in what you do and you get it out there. And then, you know, and if it's true, the world's going to catch up, like not, maybe not to be able to copy you, but at least 
to get what you were trying to do. Like, I think it's, it's amazing now that all this information is out there that people are able to kind of pick up on these great stories. Cause like you're saying, these people didn't necessarily do it for the fame. They did it just cause like, it was like a, almost like a religious servitude to this genre of music. Yeah. I mean, I think that many artists, um, we do music cause we don't have a choice. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a need to fulfill something deep in your spirit that you just have to do it. And it's like, at this point, whether you choose to make a career at it or not, you make music, you know, because, because that's what it's for. And I think back then, um, I think it was easier to make a living in general, not just, not from music, but in general. And so people could afford to do music because they loved music and maybe have a little job on the side or whatever, but it's just gotten so hard um, to make a living in general for everyone that I feel like we're losing so many of the artists who actually would be thinkers and would be geniuses because they're like, I need to make a living. So they're either not doing music for real or they're doing really commercial music because they don't feel like they have a choice, you know? And then inside being like, I wish I didn't have to make music like this, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, I yeah, I think you're right, because the intention you're going in with it is like everything you have to do now has to be done. Like, is this in service of a greater career? Because, yeah. you know, like you used to be able to buy a house for like $50,000 or like twenty. dollars talking to my mom about it. Yeah, a big house for $60,000. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like to raise a family in and like, you, you know, dollars you got private schools, you got everything you know what i mean it's definitely changed the way artists done or even like locations like um you know like we i lived around the corner from like sort of the big practice space in toronto where all sorts of music was practiced there and and people did music at every level out of this place and now it's gone and it's like there's nowhere to to set up a practice space in toronto it's like a very unaffordable city maybe not quite new york or la but close yeah. Um, I just went to a conference at Georgetown University and it was about, it was like the about the, mu the music ecosystem, sustainability for artists, for venues, and it had all kinds of people there discussing these very issues. And one of the main things that people were talking about is practice spaces. How do you create communities where musicians, because what happens is you have all these artists who come into these cities or parts of cities and we build them up, right? So we make them cool and then all the the real estate and all the you know rich people come in and then they buy it all up and then the artists have nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. So the artists continuously do the work to make an area livable and cool and everybody want to be there and then they can't afford it. And so it, we were talking about the need to create communities for artists, like whether it's like, you know, um, obviously affordable housing, but then also affordable practice spaces and, and venues to play at what you know and the thing is there's so many creative ways to go about it you could build an affordable housing building for artists and then in the bottom you could have practice rooms you could but it has to be an agenda that people are on board with and that means that people need to recognize the need to support artists and especially i mean i know canada has lots more like government support for artists um but in the states it's just like it's just not valued. Yeah. And it's interesting talking to people from Sweden that have come on the show and how much, you know, and obviously Canada, we do benefit from government support on in the arts and 
but even compared to like Sweden, we don't because in Sweden, they used to have government funded practice spaces and recording studios for young bands. And you think back to that sort of like international Swedish music explosion with like the Cardigans and Refuse and Entombed and all these bands that kind of came out of this system that provided these places for them to kind of explore themselves and just sort of when that went away, you don't see that sort of same sort of flourishing scene anymore. And it's just, it's really easy to see how we'd all benefit from having these sorts of things. No, we'd all benefit from having artists continue to be able to make thoughtful and progressive art. I mean, it's hugely important, especially in times right now, like right now when, um, you know, all the systems are falling apart and people are feeling desperate and distraught and, and um, hopeless and music, what does music do? But like make everything feel better or give you hope and give you inspiration and get you through hard times and, and also inspire you to change and to evolve. And we need music, but it's at the same time where, I mean, where we're at with the, the way that our values are in society, it's just like, we care more about, you know, these corporations than we care about school and having music programs or art programs, or even, even I was reading an article the other day about supporting the different ways that people learn, right? Because like how many artists are, are, ADD or ADHD or whatever. I mean, our brains work differently. And if you don't even build a school system that supports that, then you're also doing a disservice to all these people who think differently. Um, and if you think different, you, you come up with solutions differently, you build things differently. And that's how society progresses. So I don't know, the people I know that are in a punk are usually the most interesting people that I, I know. <laughs> and <laughs> And yet people end up kind of disenfranchised, you know, because they think differently and they don't buy into the stuff. And I think, I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a failure in, in culture to recognize these, the value and these different ways of thinking and valuing the world and, and experience and creation. It's interesting you talk about that neuro, neurodivergency that exists in a lot of musicians. So I found that on people that have come on the show in particular people that wind up being the lead singers of bands like there's you don't want to i don't want to say there's like a pre-chemical disposition that leads you to that job but it just seems to find a lot of people that do struggle with adhd or do struggle with depression or anxiety and it's fascinating when you also then look at how that leads to addiction on the road and how many of these people wind up getting lost like you're saying getting alienated from society or just kind of like caught up in addiction, trying to cope with what they have going on in their head. And it's almost like it's a system that benefits from these people's mental health uh, suffering, for lack of a better term, I guess. But like, it's also a system that doesn't help people cope with it. No, it definitely doesn't. And also, our culture enjoys watching the demise mm -hmm. and watching the show. Um, I think it's interesting because yes, artists tend to be people who are more sensitive, right? So we feel things more, we um, we have anxiety and we have stuff like that because we feel things more and, and don't necessarily know how to, we don't have the tools. Most humans don't have the tools that we need to be healthy, evolved beings. Most humans on this planet at this time, you know what I mean? <laughs> like maybe somewhere else, but it's hard to to know how to navigate all that stuff and then when you do this almost like these superhuman feats of of opening yourself up on that level of vulnerability to all these strangers and then pouring every ounce of energy you have 
um, to these roomfuls of people. And then also taking back all that crazy energy that people are giving you back. Um, that's hard to do. And it's hard to sustain and it's hard to maintain. And it's hard to navigate. Right. So yeah, then you get to the drug addiction, depression, all stuff like that. And then you're right. There's no support. Um, but also forget what I was going to say. I had like three more things to say about what you think. <laughs> no, it'll probably come up because like, I, I, you know, just kind of continue on with that. It, it is this thing where, like it's this incredible ride, right? Like they that you know can foist you up to a place that where you have a career. Like I'm I'm someone who plays music for a living, and it's, it's unbelievable. I'm I'm truly grateful for it. But at the same time, I wonder it's been the best thing for <laughs> my family to have me kind of constantly because it's. And I heard you talk about this on a podcast too, where it's just it's very different headspaces to be an artist, especially an artist creating, and then to be a parent like I've, I've got three kids and it's it's like a hard break to put on you know where you're thinking very not selfishly but you have to internal think internally and do a lot of navel gazing to create or at least i find i do and then to then all of a sudden have to throw a break on that and be like okay now i'm now i'm going to be the parent like i find that has also been something i've struggled with it's really hard it's really really hard and i've been struggling with it a lot and also I think as a mother, it's very different too, because there's so many things um, that are placed on that role that are built into patriarchy and the sort of misogyny culture. Absolutely. That we don't know because we've internalized it all. So instead of being like, this isn't really fair and this isn't what I set up to, to you know, whatever, we're like, oh, as a mother, I'm supposed to do this and do this and do this and do this and do this. But as an artist, I'm supposed to be this. And as a career person, I'm supposed to be this. It's actually impossible to balance it all. But there's no real, there's not that many conversations about the impossibility of it. There was there was the conversation decades ago about like, we want equal, you know? Um, and so now everyone's like, here, take it. Take your equal, <laughs> you know? And it's not equal. No. How can it be equal? I recently read something that Zoe Saldana had had said, and this was from years ago, but I just came across it. I was doing research for my podcast, actually. And she had said something like, as an actress, this, this was a while back, but um, the men were getting like private jets and all these perks on their contracts, and they wouldn't give her extra money for the nanny. And they're like, we don't pay for nannies. And it's like, well, you need to fucking start. I don't know if I can curse on your show. <laughs> oh, yeah. I play in a band called Fucked Up. You can definitely curse. That's right. I was like, well, where in what world does that make sense? Like, you need to pay for whatever your people need. And if you don't have enough women that you haven't come across this, you need to make a note that that's a real thing. Like, if I'm going to be away from my kids all that time, you know, I'm going to need some extra help paying for that because it costs money and it doesn't just cost money is a huge sacrifice to be away from your children that much mm -hmm. and it's oh. also it's a huge sacrifice to be with your children that much <laughs> because you need space as an artist you need space to think to create and to be you need to really be able to be in yourself and figure out what you have to offer and yeah, being a parent just really eats up at that space. And it's a really hard thing to navigate because it's so much. And anyway, say you have three hours and you're like, oh, I can get art done in this three hours. It doesn't really work like that. No. It takes three hours to wind down into that place. Sometimes. You know? 
Well, yeah, like, or you stay up all night because you're on a, you're you're in a creative hot streak and you work on something and then it's like, oh, school lunch. I got to get up and make school lunch. Yeah. Right. <laughs> comes comes quick. I know. <laughs> and, then yeah. and then repeat and then repeat. It doesn't stop. You know, there's no time where you're like, oh, okay, like if I could only get through this one night, then I have a break. No, you don't. No, no, and exactly, and and you're right. There's a you know acknowledging there's a complete double standard you know that exists and. As hard as it is for me, if it was my wife in my position, I could only imagine how much more demanding it would be on her than it is on me. And then just how much more judgment there is, right? Like yeah. you're judged if you take time off from your career and you're judged if you focus on your career. Like there's this sort of uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of like reaction from people. And, and, and you like said earlier, people love watching the crash and burn now. People revel in it. Yeah, I mean, they do. There's a there's a word for it in German. I forget. Oh yeah, Sautfrausen something. I failed German something in like school. Like that. Yeah, <laughs> we tried. We should took it. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. It's like people love to watch the show. It's like we like to build people up, and then we love to tear them down. Um, you know, even like I don't even know if I should bring this up, but I'm just going to like what all the stuff that just went down with Kanye. I'm not. I'm not going to speak on anything that Kanye said or did like whatever. I don't know what the fuck he was talking about, to be honest, like obviously. But my point is he's mentally ill. Clearly he's having a breakdown. Clearly. Why does he keep getting invited onto people's shows to have a platform to witness his psycho breakdown? You see what I'm saying? Like there, there's something wrong in culture where people are taking advantage of people's illness for, for, attention for for you know people to to watch them like i actually went on tour with hr um early early in my stiffed band and i and you know and he struggles with mental illness and i i remember watching him it was over a i mean i was actually with him on 9 11 in 2001. wow it was crazy we were in the middle of somewhere in some desert place and we went into wendy's and they were like you know, two planes just crashed into the World Trade, and we were like, "What?" Uh, we thought they were kidding. Yeah. And then they're like, "No, no, no, we're serious." And we try to call everybody. But anyway, that's a side note. My point is, watching him over the first three days, I I just watched him go up, 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 like to this highest plane of I'd never seen a better performance in my life. By the third night, it was like he was just right on the border of going into somewhere beyond. You know. And the next day he was waving and talking to angels. Yeah. Literally. And, you know, and it was like you witnessed the ascent. You know, people would say it was a descent into, you know, whatever the illness is, but it was actually, it looked like an ascent. And I was even reading something about how some indigenous cultures viewed um, like schizophrenics. And it, they they viewed it as like them having greater insight. Uh, it's just so interesting how other cultures have respect for people's challenges, differences, and value. Hmm. But we just tear people apart, help them implode. But anyway, sorry, back to bad brains. <laughs> but I just remember them trying to continuously book shows when he was ill. And it was such a challenge because they needed to tour. They needed to make money for their families. But he was ill. And so it was like they were torn. You know, what do you do? Well, I've got friends, too, that like were very clearly suffering. But there's 
this sort of machine where the people around them, be it people in the band with them or, or booking agents, like everyone has realities that they're trying to maintain for themselves that there's not necessarily someone being like, yeah, we need to stop this. Like this is not yeah, going no. to end well. Well, there's the other problem of, of the way that this system is built is that everybody eats off the artist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they're not going to, they're not going to stop you, you know? And if, and then we have, I mean, even now, look, there's these artists that are massive, huge stars and internally they're like, just falling apart, but maintaining this facade and social media doesn't help, you know? In fact, it, it really hurts, but um, they're just trying to keep the, the vision alive, but inside it's undoable. It's so much pressure. It's so much stress to continue to keep up with the rate of consumption just in general, like to put out that many records and tour that much and to make that much content, like nobody can keep up with that. And it's just, it's brutal the toll that it takes on, on people. But then at that level, you know how many people's lives you're carrying? So then you have that pressure too. I mean, it's just, it's just very, it's not healthy and it's not a good system. Well, like you were saying, it comes at any level too, because I just, I don't think we as this species are meant to be concerned about what other people are thinking about us, but that's what it becomes. Like, even if you're not worried about social media stuff, but even like, will people buy this record? Will people enjoy the art that I'm creating? Because if they don't, I won't be able to support myself in the way that I am currently doing, or, you know, like it just becomes like all these things you don't need to worry about, like in basic sort of survival, finding happiness for yourself. These are not necessarily the things that we should be concerned about. No. And it's hard because that's been the challenge of being an artist from, from the beginning. I mean, if you think about the like legendary classic painters having to do commission work and hating it, mm -hmm. um, but even still they had, um, what do you call the people? Patrons, that, I guess. Yeah, they had the patrons and they had the people who are like, you do your art. I believe in you so much that I will support your life just so you can put art into the world. Um, that's that's really great. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess you know? <laughs> and I guess that's what really the majority of fan bases are, you know, like it's a small group of people that are are mean or aggressive or or like that, you know, nasty reviews. Like the reality is there's a lot of people that just want to see you know, you as an artist flourish and be able to produce art and enjoy, they enjoy your art, but it's, it's this sort of, I guess, social media kind of world where the, these negative thoughts and negative voices are the ones that kind of are always getting through somehow. Well, yeah, because it's entertainment. That's what mm -hmm. it's all about. But also the problem also now is that even though your fans do want to see you succeed, they want your art, they want to see you win. There's a lot of entitlement that goes along with it now because of the devaluation of art. And it's not necessarily the fault of the individuals, but it's the way that we consume now. So there's like <clears throat> an expectation that you should always have access to this stuff. It should be continuous. It should be free. It should be streamed. You don't have to pay for it. And therefore it's separate from, I wanna support the artists that I love. It's like, I want more from the artists I love and I want it now. When's the next record? You just put out a record three weeks ago. When's the next record? <laughs> You know, and it's like, it's actually, it feeds the system that's broken is that all of a sudden our fans don't feel like any obligation to support um, the artist. They, they can support you by saying, yeah, we love it. When's more? 
but like nobody has to buy anything. And so how do you, um, there's no other industry where you make a product and you give away for free and nobody's paying you. Well, th yeah, that's why I think it's like you were saying earlier, like when it used to be with your sister, like the cool was the music you were into because right. music was a capital then. And now it's become like a value added thing. Like it's a, you know, it's, it's a dance on uh, a Netflix show that becomes a hit on TikTok. Like it's. That's it's the not, thing. And it's totally not even valued as a full piece of art. Mm -hmm. It's like something that goes in the background of something else. And I've heard, I've heard artists talk about being frustrated when they're doing a show, but they had a huge hit off TikTok and people get excited for like the 20 seconds of the song that that's on TikTok. And then they just disconnect for the whole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know if those are the kind of fans we want, you know? Oh, I wonder if these artists have to pitch them up too when they perform these TikTok loops on stage live. Like if the audience is expecting the chorus to kind of like go four octaves higher, so they have to like. Right. I don't know, but it's it's a thing. It's a thing where music has become just sort of a background thing or just a snippet or, um, and I mean, there are some, some kids who are still doing it, you know, the real way where they're like, oh, I, I love this whole band. And I love when I meet kids like that. I, I have so much respect for them in this age mm -hmm. um, when they're still like into finding out about kind of not just a band, but like what was going on and the culture. And because there is kind of an ahistorosity now, you know, where nobody really cares about history or where things came from, where the context, context is really important you know absolutely and i think like well back to chuck trees like that's why to me you know this guy is <laughs> like a, forget a docu-series about the sex pistols where's the chuck tree series where a guy who's in mcrad winds up playing on a billy joel record is in the roots and is like in all these disparate places in culture at once like and was like one of the first black pro skaters yeah exactly so, like, first kind of whole another culture you know a hundred percent and like the context of this matters like because i think that's that journey is so important and that's why that billy joel record connects to like tiny punk shows in philadelphia in the in the early 80s right no, it's really important i think there's a lot of untold stories that are connections like that that make things so much more interesting and i think i don't know i hope that people begin to to see the value in telling those types of stories and now that it's kind of easier to make your own um it's easier to make your own documentation of stories so maybe maybe people will do it at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices by developing better technologies we keep moving forward with each new idea innovation and partnership we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day to find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
So back to your journey, where did you, what was the first like live music you ever saw? Well, there's stuff that I saw before I remember that I know that I saw. For example, I know that I saw James Brown when I was so little that I don't remember. Whoa. <laughs> Apparently I said to my dad, I said, hey, what's wrong with his leg? And he said, he got soul. <laughs> I love that story. So whenever people ask me with my first show, I have to say that because even though I don't remember it, it happened. Um, I also know that my dad took me to see Fela Kuti when I was seven in Philly at TLA. And I remember that one because it was all his wives on stage with no shirts on. And I was like, whoa, at seven. I was like, what the hell is going on? But I mean, Bela is one of my favorite artists of all time to this day. And I'm sure that has something to do with it. Um, That's two of the greatest performers of all time. Not to cut you off there, but like, oh, that yeah. is, like back to back. What, like, you're, obviously you're seven. So, but I can only imagine like being where Sun Ra's from. Like, what was the live? Was it like kind of like a, was it like packed? Was it like, where was it even? The Fela Show. One. The Fela Show. At, it was at TLA, which is uh, Theater of the Living Arts, which is still one of the main gigs it's on south street um everybody has played at tla you know it's it's small it's only about like 1200 capacity or something like that <clears throat> i think it was at tla i'm almost sure because i think i tried to find out um but then let's see um he also took me to my first rap concert my dad because i was too young to go by myself and i went to see ll cool j and big daddy kane i think oh that's awesome <laughs> Um, I did. I didn't go to that many shows as a kid as much as I would have liked to. I went to shows with my dad. He was more into going shows than I was on my own. I think I went to I went to see Fishbone. I went to see Nina Simone when the first time she played in 14 years. Um, I went to some more. I went to rap shows. I think I was definitely into hip hop a lot in the 90s. And so I think I caught and especially once I was a teenager. I caught loads of hip hop shows. I didn't catch that many rock shows until later. Who were some of the Philadelphia rap artists in like kind of the early mid nineties? Like where are some of the bigger names? Mm. Like pre-roots, I guess, obviously. And... Pre-roots? All I remember is this band called Tough Crew in 1988. And it was, <laughs> they had this song called Danger Zone and it was so good. It was like, ding, ding, No, this one, this song is called My Part of Town. Danger Zone was a different song. It went ding, 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 ding. So damn tough. Ding, 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 ding. And there's like, rock on, eggnog a song, bring your posse along to the party. No, it is danger, danger zone. And the hot is in effect. So I say, buddy, study, think and learn. They the move we made, stunning those that just can't behave. And that's like, it was like so good. And I remember the lyrics might be all wrong because that's like from me being 13. Um, but that was really good. Oh, and then we had Cool C, <clears throat> who only lasted for, I think, some, I think he robbed a bank or something. And he, that was it. Um, maybe. It was like the song was like, ooh, ooh, you got it. The glamorous life, ooh, ooh. And it was like this big thing because in Philly, everybody would go, ooh, ooh, all the time. <laughs> there was like, there were some Philly rappers. None of them, well, obviously we had Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there was a lot of Philly rappers, but not like New York, you know, nothing like that. Did you grow up with uh, Sun Ra records in the house at all? Was your, were your parents into them? Um, my dad might have had a Sun Ra record, but I think Sun Ra was a little more out there. My dad was more into like Pharaoh Sanders and uh, Leon Thomas and all the all the Coltrane Davis and McCoy Tyner and all those stuff. Um, he was into sort of bebop 
a lot. And then he was into African music. He was into reggae. But he wasn't listening to anything that was, he wasn't really that experimental in his taste um, when it came to stuff like that, you know? It's wild when you find those Saturn records and you look at these stamped labels and the fact that they were like, you know, self-released and self-pressed in some ways. And it's just, you know, like it, it, punk gets a lot of credit for DIY, but like, you know, you look at Sun Ron, here's someone who, as you're saying, had no commercial viability in the music that he's making to this point, but like yet is putting it out himself because there's like a bigger thing than commercial success. And that's the thing. And it's like, we don't realize how important it is to do that stuff and to continue to do it. And it's so easy to lose faith at that point when you're just doing stuff yourself. Like, um, you know, imagine, I always think of, was it Van Gogh who never sold a painting his whole life? Mm -hmm. died, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine what that feels like in the in the time to know that you, I mean, you got to know that you're on to something so big and so special in your, in your deep down. You don't really know what's going to happen, but you're like, this is amazing, you know, and nobody's there yet. That's a thing for artists. We get places before everybody else. And that's a really, really hard space to live in because they say first is never first, like seconds always first or even maybe later. Um, because you're like pioneering, chopping all the weeds and doing all the work. And then somebody comes behind you and they're like, come this way, everybody. And then they just run through the stuff that you just did, you know? And I think that's part of the depression for people. It's so hard to, um, to stay that path, um, especially when making a living becomes so hard. Well, it's and like you were saying earlier, like, um, like now a meltdown is worth as much as like a, a work, like, you know, a record you spend a year and a half working on from writing to like finish mastering and everything. Yeah. That's worth as much as if you had a nervous breakdown in terms of like the content that you can produce for ultimately monetizing, you know, or like the fact is that, you know, someone could make a glib tweet that goes viral and, and that ultimately is worth more than this record, you know, that you spend a, you know, a year and a half on, I could only imagine spending a lifetime on a career and having no acknowledgement and just totally. no one would do that now. Totally. And that's the, the thing. And it's like, look how important it is. Look how important it was to the future of the world. And it's like, if we can't figure that out um, and, and figure out how to allow artists to be able to do stuff like, I mean, artists, even scientists, I mean, that's an artist as a creator. You know, people to have the space and time to think. And that's the problem with all this technology. We're using it wrong. You know, it's not meant to be all consuming like this. It's meant to be used to like help progress. And we're in this place because it's 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 so monetized right now, you know. But if you're constantly looking at your phone and your phone's constantly like beep, 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 you know, you're not here, you're not here, what you you know, you don't have this. Um, when do you think? Like, when do you just sit and think? When do you like, wow, wouldn't it be interesting if this worked like this and we could change the way that we even think about this or do this? Or or I've been thinking about myself in this way and maybe I could do something that would help me get to, you know? There has to be time for thought. And if we fill it all up, then we don't really progress. And that's kind of where we're at, really. Um, not that we're not progressing, but we're not in a great place, you know? Well, like with my kids too, like, you know, we, we, you turn off the screens and they're like, I'm bored. 
And it's like, oh well, <laughs> it's board- so addictive. It's so, so addictive. within like you let them use it for one day. The next day they wake up, they're like, beep, 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 turn oh, it off. Oh, yeah. And, and it's. <laughs> And it's like, but boredom is where some of the best things came out of. Like, if I wasn't bored, there's no way I would have wound up singing in a band. Like, if I wasn't bored, I wouldn't have done a zine. Like, being bored is kind of like, like, we need that, like you're saying, we need that space to kind of, like, get to the next stage. Exactly. It's so important. And also, what it does to a brain to constantly just be jumping from one thing to the next thing and looking through. I mean, I have twin four-year-olds. We're almost five, but like my son, he really like he gets so addicted to the to the phone and iPad so quickly, the little one, <clears throat> that you turn around for two seconds, your phone is gone and he's hiding behind a door somewhere playing subway surfers, you know? And you're like, how do you even know? Like, how do you know how to do all the stuff on the phone? It's, well, the, it's dangerous. Well, but it's like it's it's almost like you know, it, it, I'm not saying it is by design, but it is, ulti- I guess, ultimately by design. Like, you don't have to read anymore. Like, with computers, you just have to read and be able to type and things like that. Now it's all tactile and it's all, like, touch interface. So it's designed for younger people to use it. And, and you can start using it, as you're saying, like, three years old, you can figure out how to get on that thing. Better than better than us. Like, they're yeah. like swipe this way, do this and that. I'm like, how do you know where the X is? You, you've got it all figured out. He figures out the code before he knows numbers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> He's just like, yes. go this way. I saw you move this way. Got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, I don't know, it's funny though, because I started trying to make uh, YouTube shorts and things like that. And I had no idea because I don't necessarily watch them. So I brought my like 10 year old and I'm like, okay. I know this content wise isn't what you'd watch, but does this look like something you would right. watch on YouTube? <laughs> I mean, the, the eight to 10 year olds need to be the managers because they know everything. When we had, um, during the lockdown time where everybody was doing homeschool and everything, um, my son at that time was like six. And the moms were like texting, how do you do this to get the, I can't figure it out. I would ask my six year old and he'd be like, tell them to do this, this, and this. And I'd be like, Radix says, do this. <laughs> they like, thank you. Like he knew how to do stuff I'd never heard of. Yeah. No, my 13 year old now it's, it's wild. Like there's no, you know, and it's so different because like, you know, at a different point, like you just would put the things on the higher shelf so the kid couldn't reach them. But now there's no shelf high enough. Like my 13 yeah. year old knows more about computers. Anything I could put in to prevent him from getting on to. Oh, they just undo it. Oh, they just undo it. Yeah. There's no, yeah. <laughs> like, what's the point? Like. <laughs> it is but and then it's you know like i was reading manufacturing consent and it's like amazing how outdated that book is because now it's like stand in line for 48 hours to give away your consent or to to pay them to take your consent from you like they don't have to manufacture anymore we just through the use of these phones like we're paying them for the ability to advertise to us right and, and we don't even know and nobody even cares like the, the new technology where you could make your face into all these different things and then but you don't know that then you're giving them the right to use your face to create other faces and then people can use it in their cartoon and they can use it in there they can use it in stuff and yes. there's no regulation yeah. of it yet yeah no and it's <laughs> and it's like the idea of like at a you know like in a mcdonald's saying to you in the 90s like okay give me your fingerprints your face scan and all your passwords. But yet I've given all that to Apple very willingly. And then they can sell it. 
they can sell it. They won't without you even knowing. And then, and then use that information to market my own image back to me through some way. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like a... I know. I was um, I was at my my son's school because we were like applying for the next year for the twins to go there, and so they the parent the kids are having play dates, so they just hijacked the parents and just I don't know had us doing nothing but but stuff. So they're like, oh, here's a video. What do you think of when you think about today? And they're like, well, here's today. And I'm like, what are they about to show us? They show us this video that had McDonald's places that robots cook everything. This is real. There's McDonald's where the robots are in the back cooking. Then they had trucks, the big freight trucks that drive themselves on the highway. And they had, you know, obviously, the 3D printed houses. And they had this. They had the cars drive themselves. And they had, I mean, it was basically a world where humans weren't really needed or involved at all. And they're like, this is today. So what do you what would you what do you imagine what you think 20 years from now will be like, right? And I was like, well, I fucking hope not like that. Like I hope we pull it back. <laughs> we gotta pull it back and have it where it's more balanced, where like humans actually play a role in the world. Because otherwise we're headed for some really fucked up shit. You know what I mean? We can't live in a world like that. Yeah. So I think when I think of the kids, I read this article about these kids in Brooklyn who are trying to go tech free. I'm so inspired by this idea. And they call themselves the Luddites. And it's so punk rock. Like that is punk rock. And this time, and honestly, I've been thinking about it in like a documentary because it's, it's kind of straight edge. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like the idea of being like right now in this day and age that I'm going to be tech free. And all the kids have little flip phones because their parents made them have and they meet in the park and they sit together and they read a book together with some paint and write in a journal. And we're going to need a lot more of that to straighten, to get us back on a road that makes sense because it can't be, I know technology is exciting and it should be, but the balance is where we are really unclear about, you know, the harm and the path that we've taken. Yeah. Like if they remade Terminator now, like people would be waiting in line to give their souls over to those giant robots. And they'd be like <laughs> very happily, like, oh, wicked. This robot, I paid this robot $5,000 to make me work for it now. And I, I just wondered, like, how much of this stuff has been eroded away? Like, you think back to, like, how much organization you're talking about practice spaces were done around going to record stores, you know, or like how many people met in fat beats or met in, like, um like toronto rotate this you know or like these different record stores which provided like places for people to meet or, or, or practice spaces where people would meet or it feels like the erosion of these physical spaces is really restricted where you can meet with people and so it, it's kind of forcing people into more online stuff it, it feels like well and then i mean when you get around the people who've grown up in this they don't know how to interact yeah yeah oh and that's a huge problem like they just i mean even like overseeing playdates of some of these kids <laughs> and they just like want to go off separately and or they'll have a playdate where they can both bring their ipad and sit and try to and you're like no the dream playdate that's their dream playdate yeah. no and, and you gotta i mean yeah we gotta learn how to to be to be i mean i think it's gonna come back honestly because just like vinyl just like vinyl right it's i mean it may not be it's not gonna come the main thing but we find value in things once they're gone, right? Once they're, they're removed. And then somebody's like, well, that was cool. There's something really special about that experience. So maybe we can bring it back. I think that's what's going to happen. I think as these, you know, everyone's always looking back like 20 years, whatever. I think they're going to start saying, 
wow, that was cool when you had to go somewhere. And then, and so then they'll start creating these spaces for it to be like that. And then, and then they'll get to experience things that don't exist anymore and be like, oh, actually, this is better. Yeah. You know, and that really, and you really feel that with this younger generation of kids that do kind of like still draw power from, you know, DIY punk shows and this whole generation of new bands that have kind of sprung up and that. And there's you know, a lot of, there's a lot more diversity. In these oh, absolutely. Too, punk is, is, like, a, punk is a lot more like it pretended to be before now. Like it really yeah. is what it pretended to be. Yeah. What, what was the first punk show you remember going to? I was dead milkman and fishbone, but like, would you remember going to like a DIY show in Philadelphia at any point? I didn't really go to those until I was playing them. Yeah. You what know, was the first one you played? I don't know. I was talking to Chuck about it the other day. Um, but I, I remember playing at the FDR skate park and like performing on the table. <laughs> you know, there was always Chuck knew everything. And, and at that point, I didn't. I would just roll up somewhere and just be there. There were so many things like that. But I don't really have much of a memory because um, I was talking to my other bandmate, Chris Jar, and he's like, he remembers everything. He's like, oh, yeah, you remember when we played this and we played at the, you know, this surf festival and we did this and we went there. And I don't remember. It was just such a blur for me. I don't know why it was a blur at that period. And I think it might've been a blur because of what came after it. Of course. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden it was like shows and shows and shows and everything. So I just, I don't remember the details so much, but um, I'm trying to remember. I know that, I mean, there was a lot of just grimy, grimy, um, bathrooms was you ever play the stall egg i don't think so is that in philly it's in west philadelphia it was like three warehouses that were kind of in a row or we like warehousey type spaces and i remember going there and someone had taken a shit beside the toilet oh nice (laughs) (laughs) i don't think i could have done that one i don't think i could have gone in there (laughs) but um but yeah i remember playing once you know still got going a little bit we played at cbgb's which was really really special for me and um and it was packed i really felt really special because that at that point the press had started coming out and people were like what is this and i remember we went in there and we we rocked that show so good and i'm so sad that we i lost all the footage we used to record every single show oh wow and in the beginning in the beginning we weren't so good and then by the end we kill we walk in like gunslingers with you know just go in and be like and we walk out like yeah you know we feel so good about it i don't have the footage Somebody has back, back then you used to have to give your footage to people that were doing your website. And one day everyone's like, I don't have it. I don't have it. Well, it's funny too, because like when people had these VHS tapes and there were physical zines, it felt like stuff wasn't lost in the same way it is with this digital stuff where if someone loses a hard drive. It's all gone. No, it's all gone. But I definitely lost a whole box of a of, of physical VHS and a little, <laughs> it was all tapes and they all got, it was a whole thing of them and they all got lost. Okay. Um, I guess I throw my point out the window then you're right. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> you can all get lost. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think where else. I mean, it was just a whole bunch of like, you know, back then that was the cool thing too. Just it definitely wasn't about the money because you're literally splitting the, the $300 from the door, 300 being good, you know, uh, splitting it here, guys, here's your $20 from playing the shows and um, bad sound. You don't care. Yeah. There's no, there's no sound checks. You roll in and, and you just make it work. And then I just really found my footing as a performer in those shows because 
it was just about energy. It was all about energy and just being able to, to have that type of release that you only can do in punk rock music, I think, that energy and the speed and the, for me, growing up, like literally I studied HR tapes, you know, just like, whoa, like what is he doing? And there was no part of me that was going to be trying to do like flips or jumping off the stage and stuff like that. Um, I think that goes down very different for women. I've had, I mean, even later in my career, I've had women get like assaulted sexually as their um, crowd surfing. Yeah. yeah. And stuff like that, which is insane. Yeah. But um, but just the idea of just being able to move any way you feel with no thought about it. It's like it's like being in the clouds almost performing that type of music. It's just like it's like almost like being bodiless in a way, you know, to be able to just be the energy, to just be the energy. And then in Santi Gold, it's so different. It's so choreographed. It's so I've got so many things going at the same time. There's tracks and there's live and there's this and there's no room for just going off the grid in that way. Do you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've talked about this with someone recently, a friend of mine, that there's no genre that says free as as punk i was talking to a friend of mine who's who's a rapper and and a wrestler a pro wrestler mvp and he i was just saying like this is going to be different than any other type of expression you've done because like you're saying you don't have to be on the beat necessarily even you don't have to worry about these other things you have to worry about in every other genre you can just be the energy like that's the best way to put it because that's that's your instrument ultimately yeah and then and then it's just so raw because then the crowd's like in it with you. Yeah. Like the way that they feed off that energy. I mean, and that that's consistent across performing, but depending how hype everybody gets, it's different, you know? Absolutely. Like I think it's I well, I've never been able to play jazz music, but I imagine it's like improv improvisational jazz or like, you know, where you're just feeding off that crowd, or pro wrestling too, where you're also feeding off that crowd. Right. Oh, how did you get involved with like the you know working at major labels and, and doing the songwriting side of things first um not to diss my parents but they were pretty discouraging when i sang for them was <laughs> oh like maybe you should consider songwriting <laughs> oh no mine said the same thing to me and i can't sing anywhere close to you so i feel very bad for you on that one <laughs> I mean, but I actually, I never, I'm kind of kidding, but I'm not. I never wanted to be a performer. That was never my main incentive. Um, the only reason I ended up being a performer was because I am an artist and I wanted, I wanted to make what I heard in my head. And I knew that in order to do that, I had to do it. So that's really what pushed me out in front of people. I have so much, like, I don't anymore, but I, as a child, I had so much anxiety about performing or singing in front of anyone. Um, so I was not that type of child. Um, so I thought that I wanted to own a record company. That's what I thought. And I always I always wrote lyrics. I always wrote poems and lyrics. I wrote rap lyrics and and poems mostly. And then I didn't write songs because I didn't really play anything. And I didn't think I could write anything without playing anything. And then I, I got some production equipment when I was about 15, like an SP-1200, you know, the old uh, beat machine, drum yeah. machine. I had like an ASR 10 and I just started messing around with that and just realized, okay, well, you got a keyboard and you got some drums that's playing something. So, I mean, I took guitar, I suck at instruments. I, took <laughs> <laughs> um, I was a music major in college and I, I took hand drums as my major. And so I studied traditional um, Haitian rhythms and uh, West African and a little bit of Cuban. And that was actually really influential to the way that I approach rhythm 
um, and syncopation and stuff like that. I just, I hear, I hear like layers of rhythm and that's how I write too. So it, it, it influenced my approach to melody. Um, but so, so I started working in a record company. I had an internship and then I got another internship. And then I ended up getting a full-time job summer after my junior year. And I commuted back to Wesleyan from New York for a semester. And then I graduated early. So I ended up working at Sony as executive assistant. Then I was an A&R assistant. And then I signed an artist to, an a to a demo deal. And I was trying to make this different kind of Black artist. I was in the Black music department back then, right? That's what we called. Um, and it was very like, unless you make R&B or hip hop, which is exactly the same as now, then you're not Black music. Um, and so I was trying to make something different. And I ended up finding, um, I ended up writing the songs myself because I couldn't, I tried a bunch of different songwriters and I couldn't get it to sound like what I wanted. So I, I wrote the songs myself for her demo. And I took him back to the, the, the head of the label. And he was like, I don't know, she's good. Maybe she could be in this R&B group that we have. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's totally not the point. So I left and I was like, I'm gonna finish making this record. And I got her a, a deal with another label and I brought on Doc McKinney, who I met. Uh, he had just done this record for a, for a woman named Astero. Um, they're Canadian. Yeah, I, I remember. And um, he was so progressive in his thinking about music, but he came from punk rock too. Oh, wow. He was in punk bands. He, I mean, so he knew all the rap and he knew all this and he knew all this new sort of futuristic sound stuff, but he was a punk rocker. So me and him aligned on um, references, sounds, because I'm such a like particular sound snob when it comes to guitars and dead drums and stuff like that. And he knew all my references. I'm like, you know, like Devo, like this. And he's like, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> and so we worked together on that record. And it was it was a struggle because it was all of our kind of, it was my first project, her, the artist's first project. And it was one of Doc's early projects. And the compromise was hard because it was definitely more soul than I wanted to be, but it still had all these rock influences. And so that was that. And then after doing that, I sort of was discouraged because I was like, well, that's not exactly how I wanted the record to sound. I'm going to go and make a record that sounds like I want it to sound. And that's when I moved to Philly and hooked up with Chuck and then started singing from there. It's interesting because we were talking earlier about how the change in um, music that's kind of come from like lots of practice spaces and things like that. And obviously that's not your motivation from the Santa Gold, Santo Gold project versus Santo, sorry, sorry about that. I apologize. Santo Gold project versus when you were doing Stift. But it's interesting how that approach to doing music where you're taking, you know, there's collaboration involved, but you're taking a lot of it and just making it about one person as a producer artist like the whole thing and it's it's interesting how that kind of pre-foretells the way a lot of music has gone i think in including punk too you're seeing so more. what do you mean again i, I don't understand exactly like the idea of like you don't necessarily need a band that would necessarily need to be in a practice space like you can kind of do it in a much smaller practice space or even do it in your house and then ultimately just go in the studio to actually 
bring life to it. Like there's still collaboration involved, but now or then, then, I mean, like you're not, you're doing it for different reasons back then, but I think now it seems like that's the model that a lot more artists are going to wind up doing now is trying to so you're saying instead of a band organically coming together and writing songs, the idea of producing it, like you're the producer and you bring in different pieces to, to, to do the different work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how from a, from a major label perspective, which is where I was, I was at Sony at Epic and that's how things were done um more and more right because mm -hmm. in the beginning even with hip-hop the band came with their producer every band had their own dj slash producer and they had their own sound and it was right about the era that i'm talking about when like p diddy became you know this whole new thing and everybody that's exactly when i worked at uh at epic where everybody wanted to sign anything that puffy did anything who is he down with puffy that's what we want to sign and it became the era of the producer where like it didn't, you didn't have to come with your own sound. We'll give you the sound. You just have to have the look or the whatever, or the connection, be associated with this person and we'll give you the whole persona. So it's this manufactured music. Um, and that was the environment that I was in, but I was like, wow, well maybe I can manufacture something really cool and different that doesn't exist. And that was my angle. Um, and since then, yeah, it's become a whole, that's become the way of, of the whole world. It's like, I mean, even when you get <clears throat> all these huge mega boy bands or whatever that, that were all manufactured, which is interesting to think that the Sex Pistols was manufactured in that way, right? I mean, it can work. It can work. But, um, and I mean, it can work in like an organic, cool way, but often it does, often, it, I mean, I'm not gonna say often it doesn't, it can work, but it's just a whole different process. And now the way I make music, especially thank God for being able to make music from different places now, because you can work for, with people all over the world um, without having to travel all over the world, which is a benefit, though it is nice to be in the room with people. Well, but you're also now like the, it's sort of the authentic version of that producer that you're talking about where you're a producer artist in yourself, where you're kind of like, creating your own thing and obviously i don't not to lump you in but there's sort of this wave of like eight track diplo mia like just sort of this 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 sort of like diy version of the producer artist where you don't need to necessarily need a major label backing you can kind of like build your own universe yourself yeah i think that is is really really important for artists specifically because of all the things that we've been talking about and how it's so hard to um it's so hard to to be valued in the in the other infrastructure that's all about like commodification of everything um and if artists more artists can figure out how to do it themselves um and actually create a sustainable um structure to do that particularly i think web3 is really interesting for that because i know that you know the crypto world is going through massive upheaval and change right now but that part of it isn't really the part about building community and about having direct uh relationships with your fans where you don't need any middlemen for anything mm -hmm. that seems very futuristic to me the idea that you can literally have a direct relationship and be like do you guys want to buy this or <laughs> what would you like me to make <laughs> you know i have these rare vinyls that i found who wants them you know it's such a cool idea or well, i'm having an event for everybody who's just in this group like that is exciting and that sounds really futuristic and it sounds like empowering for artists um to be more autonomous and i think that definitely needs to be the future for for artists 
to be able to monetize their work directly because they have their fan base right in front of them and they know who really cares about what they're doing and they don't have to pay more people and more people and more people to pretend that they're doing some work, you know, <laughs> that it really happening. Well, that's what I think like you're, you're right. Cause there's this idea of, you know, I think that with the NFT crypto thing, people got, you know, like obviously that's just another thing people are selling, but the idea of like creating these sort of like, communities and the ultimately you could have shows where you could have your community come and see you play open for another artist and their community could get an opportunity to see you play and you kind of put together this sort of online version of a scene you know and that's not bounded by borders totally and also i mean i just started my mind's called fan club it's really (laughs) generic (laughs) which is what it's meant to be i thought it was funny but so yeah it's called fan club and I just, I'm about to launch, I don't think I've launched it yet. It's this space called Studio. And basically what it's meant to do is um, be a place for my only my fans to kind of have that community and build a community. And the idea is hopefully that it will become a cool community of people being able to meet. Obviously it's online, but it's not like, the general web where you you don't really know who's there or whatever these are people who are like really really interested in this and the way i set it out and i don't even think i put it i haven't launched it yet actually but i i when i was talking about the space i equated it to when i was at quaker school in high school i went to quaker school and we used to have this thing called meeting for worship once a week for 45 minutes in the meeting house and basically the whole school just sit, sat in silence for 45 minutes um and if anybody was moved to say anything, you would just stand up and say it. Because the idea is that there's that of God in everyone. That's the Quaker creed. Okay. And and so if you have anything to say, then it's inspired by God. So you can say it. It could be about anything, like anything you have to say. So you stand up, you're like 14. You're like, hey, um, today, I blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like you get all these like awkward little cute things that people say. And then you sit back down and everybody sits and reflects on what you said. That's it. Nobody responds to it, whatever. And then until somebody else feels like they have something to say, then they stand up. It's so awesome. And it's really empowering too, as a kid to have done that. But I was like, what if you have a space where it's like that, where you know that the people in this space are thinkers and respectful and like, and like-minded and share interests. And, and it's just a place where you could like, I don't know, share things that are interesting and grow ideas but it's literally based around a very curated group of people. And it's the same thing as like finding community around people that like the artists that you like, how we used to do, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think that it's a, there's, I don't know. I don't think people have figured it out all the way, but I think there's potential there to, to start recreating those spaces because then once you have the space online, you can take it to, to physical. You're like, okay, I'm having this, movie screening tonight for everybody in this group let's go you know yeah well i think you know and you you mentioned them earlier and i've heard you talk about them before but i think you know it'd be interesting to see what a band like devo if they were still like an active band in that way would be doing with these sorts of tools that are at our disposal right now because you know that's a band that that did galvanize community around it and and that community wound up being the people that created all sorts of amazing art when they you know were inspired by that I just think part of the problem is that then and now are so different in what it requires to sustain yourself, um, you know, yeah. to make a living and, and have a livelihood, especially once you have kids and stuff, 
there's so much less time to be creative. And that is the problem. Just the hustle, it leaves no time for you to really do any of the things that are really creative and fun and exciting. Um, and, and that's what we have to work on. Like, how do we take time back? How do we clear space? How do we make things move a little bit slower and, and take some of the demands off? Because when you're doing that much stuff, you don't get to the best stuff. You don't get to make the, the coolest thing. You don't get to have great ideas. And um, <clears throat> it's it sucks because it puts a lot of pressure on youth, on the youth, because they're the only ones with the time. So they're the ones that have to go protest and they're the ones that have to do this and they're the ones that have to do everything. They're the ones that have to speak up for the environment. And it's like, it's not really fair. And it's also, it's not the best thing. I mean, it's great for them, but there, there has to be partnership. Like then the older people who have experience and have wisdom and whatever, we should have, we should be coming at it from another angle of like, you know, we have this experience and we know that the best use of energy is not going to be that it's going to be this. So we'll take it from this way and continue to push this way. We'll build something that nobody at that point could have thought of because they don't have the experience and the connections and the, you know, the, the opportunities. And that's not happening because we're too busy just spinning in this like hamster wheel. And it's like what you said earlier. I, I think we're less adapted to use this technology than these kids are. You know, that, that we're like, we don't know how to give ourselves limits on these. I mean, the global we, when I say the we, but like, that's the, we're struggling to try and figure out this technology. My hope is that our, our children who have grown up with this thing will be maybe immune a little bit more to its powers in the long term. Or my eldest has no interest in social media. He's like, like he'll watch stuff, but like in terms of like, you know, I want to put myself out there. I want to put this embarrassing photo of myself on the internet. He's like, right. why would I ever want? He's like, delete any photo of me, dad. Like, do not put that That's out. How I am. And it sucks because being like that doesn't pay off, you know, as an artist, that's for sure. But it does pay off as a human being. So you're doing a good job with that. I think he's just rebelling against me. I think if they think I'm doing this, inspiring him by setting a terrible example that he just does not want to follow at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm not doing that. But, you know, um, the thing is, you know, some of us may struggle with technology or not really relate to it in the same way. But the partnership that I'm talking about is to be like, hey, um, this is actually more important than what everybody's talking about right now. And the reason is because in history, this happened in the context of this and this was and this is how we did things then. And if somebody could take, you know, the focus that you guys are all doing the technology, but actually shift the focus to this, which is way more important and, and way more interesting. That's the conversation that needs to be happening across generations because they need our perspective, our experience, our hindsight to help steer them. And then we need their time, energy, fresh perspectives. And that's how we work together. But also there's no value for wisdom through generations anymore. There's no value for, so it's like, we're really just getting in our own way so much and not making use of all the members of society and all the ways, the different ways that people think, like we were saying earlier, and all the different levels of, or the different styles of getting things done. Yeah, there's a, a very intense generational distrust, it seems now. Yeah. I mean, understandably, because if you look at who's running the government, I mean. Yeah, and also, 
Facebook and Fox News really made some asses out of the previous generation, so. I mean, it, it's not even just them. It's like, look at that movie, The Social Dilemma. You know, it, it is like, it's a very distrustful reality where you just feel like you're being manipulated for corporate usage. Mm -hmm. And and then they're literally numbing out whole generations of kids by having them addicted to to technology or on drugs. I mean, really, I mean, drugs are so popularized in modern music. And who's doing that? Who's signing that stuff? Who's telling people that if your song's not about this, it's not going to get on radio? These are corporations. And they're literally like numbing out the entire generation that actually could be making change they can continue to do what they're doing well and, and like we're talking about artists like a lot of these artists are self-medicating and are you know working way too hard turning out way too much of their themselves or you know exposing way too much of themselves and and just self-medicating and talking about it like there's just no yeah man this is ending very bleakly i was hoping we'd end on a much more positive <laughs> note <laughs> well, i was gonna say this i was gonna say this there is a thing though, right? Where you talk about self-medicating or even getting therapy or getting help. And I've had conversations along the mental health crisis in, in music, particularly, oh, well, labels should build in a stipend for mental health. All that is fine, but guess what? If we don't change the system that's making people so stressed out and, and, and hitting you know walls every at every turn and like, if we don't change a system where people can't create a good life for themselves without killing themselves, then it's not going to change. People are still going to be on drugs and people are still going to have mental health issues and whatever. We have to change the system so that life feels different and life feels better and that we have an easier time taking care of ourselves and making a living and a happier um, existence. And those are the things that we really need to be addressing and like we can keep making music about it we can keep doing drugs we can keep like playing video games or whatever but it's until we can actually like really challenge the things that are perpetuating this culture we're not going to get anywhere well this has been an amazing conversation and anytime you want to come back and, and talk about the frightening shape of the world or the bad brains or the dead milkman please know the door is always open Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's really great to be able to have like real good conversations. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Santi, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Santi will be back for a part two whenever she wants. Because um, that was a lot of fun, that conversation. And uh, speaking of fun, the fun does not stop here on Turned Out of Punk. Because we're going from legend to legend. Next episode of the show, one of arguably the greatest songwriters to emerge from punk, someone who is very reluctant to call himself a punk, but someone who I have a great conversation with nonetheless, from the Soft Boys, the legend Robin Hitchcock is on the show. That's right, Robin will be coming to North America on a tour at the end of the month, and uh, yeah, whew. I'm, I'm excited for you to hear this one. This is a really cool conversation with someone I've, I'd always wanted to talk to. All right, that is it for me. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of Indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights. Stop hating violence towards people of different faiths and different races because 
we're not talking about political stuff here. This is just basic human rights stuff. People deserve to be able to live free and, and not have to worry about this kind of uh, hate and violence. So if there's organizations that are affecting positive change in your communities, get involved. Uh, you, know, you can donate your time if you have money. I'm sure they could use some money, uh, you know, your energy in some way. Uh, I also add to this that a, a human rights issue is the right to choose what you want to do with your reproductive system. And that shit's under attack in Canada and, and all over the world. You're seeing this happen where people are trying to take away people's rights. You know, people are going after people's people, you know, people, are, uh, it's, it, there's just nowhere to start because there's nowhere to end with this sort of conversation, but it is infuriating to sit back and watch sometimes. But I promise if you get involved or talk to the people around you and, and strengthen your kind of community, you know, hopefully we can affect positive change and, and get rid of some of the frustration in the world right now. You know, it's a very frustrating time. Uh, speaking of getting involved, get involved in punk, do something, create your own culture. Anyone can do this shit to quote Tony Irva, start a band, start a fanzine, start a podcast. Well, maybe not a podcast, but, but do something and eh, do a podcast, do whatever you can. Just anyone can do this shit. Anyone can do these things and and look where it can take you you know I, I think that's what i i hope people get out of this podcast every episode is that these are all just people that just did it you know and, and ended up uh you know in some cases like, like the next two weeks becoming legends uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking at those organs you don't need them it's literally dead weight at that point and i've seen firsthand the miracles uh organ transplants can can do for people and so sign your organ donor cards uh try meditation it worked for me and i need to do it more but when i do it works and i find just the practice coming into daily life and i know people have known this for centuries i know i'm, I'm not <laughs> coming up with anything new but it was new it was new to me so maybe it's new to you all right that's it thank you everyone for listening and I will see you on the next episode.